Good afternoon, folks. Welcome to the podcast, The Lotus Eaters, for Friday, the 4th of August, 2023. I'm joined by the wonderful Peter Whittle. Peter, thanks so much for coming in. Hi, Cole. And today we're going to be talking about the decline and how it's uh, undeniable at this point, which is heartbreaking. Uh, I'm going to tell you a bit about South African politics. I'm not an expert, but I did look into the uh, Economic Freedom Fighters, which is uh, such a wonderful name for such a kind party. And we're going to be talking about Americans and how they don't understand that they occupy a place and time in the continuum of history. And it's amusing, frankly. Uh, so our American friends will definitely enjoy that. Anyway, so let's uh, let's begin. Uh, what what do you think of the state of modern Britain, Peter? God, how long have you got? <laughs> I mean, About 20 minutes. Yeah, I mean, from what point of view? I suppose, just to allude to something we were just talking about before we came on air, uh, the general uh, decline in, you know, our surroundings has suddenly become noticeable. Yeah. Sorry, John, we're getting an echo. Can we um, can we stop that, please? Yeah, and uh, I've sort of found this because I've been going around the country, different places, and you can't. You, it's sort of palpable. Fewer people about, um, and also just dirty streets tattiness generally a sense of things not working i mean all of this i'm you know will be nothing news i'm sure anyone who's listening um but i think that you know when you look uh, at these all of these sorts of things even the way that people people's demeanor even you know um then that seems to have actually struck me almost in the past year i would say it's 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 sudden like that and um, I no longer, I was living in, I've lived in London all my life, um, but I, me, I moved out to uh, Windsor a year and a half ago. Um, and people think that, you know, Windsor's this very twee place and everything. It's not twee at all, actually. But, you know, even in, you know, uh, places like Windsor, you know, there are signs of, you know, empty shops. We, we, you know, things that basically people have got used to in their own suburban yeah. town centres. Um it's too easy to say it's just about the pandemic. No. I think there's been a general retreat for these very reasons from the public space. I, I see it in myself. I, I can feel it in myself. You know? There's been a general sort of hollowing out of life. Yes, exactly. And, and a sort of um, exhaustion. Mm. I would say cultural exhaustion. Mm. You know, that's, you say, what does that actually mean? I sort of I know what I mean by that. I'm sure you do, but it's a kind of feeling that there is uh, there's no dynamic driving society, uh, you know that, and and what we've had in the past three or four years, I would say, is a sense in which people's people can't even take refuge in the past. Yeah. They can't, you know, nostalgia is probably a, a banned thing. Everything is under attack at the moment. Yes. So it's hard to identify where yes. the attacks are really coming from. Yes. I mean, it's a kind of from the moment you wake up in the morning, if you're still stupid enough to listen to the Today program, um, right the way through, um, it is one long litany of basically why you are essentially bad, why you are at fault. Um, this affects certain sections of our society more, like they say men or whatever. And, uh, you know, that is never ending. It's, it's incessant. And uh, it will have an effect on the way people 
That's why one of the reasons I think they sort of stop having children. I don't just think it is about money and the expense of it. I mean, if you don't feel that there's actually anything in the in the future, it's kind of odd subconscious thing. You you know, you why would you do something which was about the future? Why can't we feel optimistic about our own futures? It's no, it's very hard to explain why the decline is happening. And no politicians, no pundits on TV, no one ever tries to give you an explanation. I, I, I talk to taxi drivers quite a lot because I think taxi drivers are an interesting barometer of the country. Because yeah. at some point, everyone has to get a taxi, right? Yeah. And the the taxi drivers I speak to are always just like, yeah, this country's going down. And, and, I, and I ask them, well, do you ever see anyone trying to explain? They're like, no. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's inevitable. Well, no, the reason I think for that is that uh, we're not to, meant to think that it is going down. We're meant to be actually, uh, you know, living in some kind of nirvana. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's essentially, you, therefore, you can't, you have to sort of, you know, there's a sort of thing now called vision crime, I, I think, that you sort of look at something and say, that's not right. But actually, everything is telling you that this is absolutely fine and that, in fact, it's better than ever. Well, that's very much what the Conservatives are trying to pretend, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I, I just remember Liz Truss saying, I think Britain's best days are ahead of us. <laughs> I think they're gone. Mm. Um, but uh, but one, one, of the, one of the things that I think is something that will help with this is actually going back to understanding what made us good. And I think that virtue ethics made us good, which is why if you want to support us, go over to the website and go and check out uh, Stelios and I's examination of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, uh, which I think are just the root of all of the virtues that Britain has had, basically. Uh, doing the right things for the right reasons, for the right amount of time, with the right people. Uh, these are all things that are important, and it is not just in one realm of life. This is a, a, a thing you need to think about for your whole life. And it's one of those things that just you would never get this kind of conversation in an educational situation, like in, in schools, in academia, you wouldn't hear about it on TV. And yet this, honestly, the reason my life is way better now is because I decided to essentially just do what Aristotle recommended. Right. Just, just, just try and be a good person in, in these ways. And it really worked for me. And so I totally recommend it for other people. But when you say works for you, Carl, I mean, do you mean it changes your general attitude to things? Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It, it, to, primarily to understand that you should do all of the things you like doing, but not too much or too little, um, I think is a good way of actually reframing your entire life because too many um, life plans are in some way really restrictive, mm. right? Oh, you should never eat this. You should never do that. And it's like, no, you, you, you should. There's a time and a place for all of these things, but you should do everything essentially in moderation. And this is an old phrase that the British have used for many years because it's true. Mm. You shouldn't be denying yourself the pleasures of life, but also you shouldn't be doing it all the time. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, you know, go, go out once a month with your friends and go drinking. That's totally fine. In fact, it's part of the good life to have all of these things. And actually, I think that one of the things that Zoomers don't have these days is access to the good life because they don't have friends. They mm. don't have friendship circles mm. in the way that when we were young, we absolutely did because you couldn't just spend all your time on the internet. You know, you didn't have that option. If you wanted to have fun with other people, you had to go out and that was important. Um, but anyway, so that's what I think is the solution to our current woes. 
but let's have a look at our current woes. So there was a recent poll by Ipsos Mori, I believe it was, uh, where they asked people, well, do you think Britain's getting better or worse? And 76% thought Britain is a worse place to live uh, compared to 49% in June 2010, which is when the austerity years began, and uh, 71% in May 2008 as the financial crisis hit. Uh, this is reflected in people's opinions on politics, obviously. Uh, nobody really approves of any of our politicians, although... Um, Keir Starmer is the most approved of because he hasn't become the Prime Minister and screwed everything up yet. But even then, uh, only 36% of people see Keir Starmer as the most capable man to be the Prime Minister. So two-thirds of the country are like, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's three-quarters of the country that say no to Sunak. I mean, actually, how much notice do you even take of Westminster politics? I, I mean, I've, I take very little. I mean, you know, I, I was asked uh, the other day to go on uh, something and just simply was like, what do you think of Rishi Sunak? Do you think? And I sort of thought, I don't care. I, I don't, don't care. I don't think of Rishi Sunak, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. But don't. Seems a perfectly nice guy. Uh, you know, what? Oh, I'm sure it'd be nice to have a barbecue with, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, really, uh, it's sort of, it seems beside the point. Yes. That's the point. Yeah. I, I, I wrote something about this on Twitter the other day. It's, like, it's, it's clear that there are forces at work that are just beyond national government at this point, mm. and none of the people in charge have got the, the stones to challenge these forces. Mm. And so the governments just feel like regional managers. Mm. Like Rishi Sunak feels like a, the regional manager of a McDonald's. Mm. Everything he presents, he presents in the sort of CBB's presenter voice. Mm. And it's like, look, I don't take you seriously. I don't really think you're in charge. You know, you don't have the gravitas or the energy to make me think that you're the one who's really pulling yes. these strings. Yes. Um, but I, and and it's not just me who thinks this. I mean, seventy nine percent of people are dissatisfied with the government. <laughs> Only fourteen percent of the people in the country are satisfied with the government. I'd love to speak to some of those people. Sorry, what exactly are you satisfied with? Like, what around you do you think is at least as good as it was five years ago, if not slightly better? You know, there's there's absolutely nothing. Uh, fewer than half the country think that Labour are ready to form a government, obviously, but uh, none of the above are essentially in a commanding lead at this point in British politics, which is typical. Well, the thing is, is that the general uh, calibre of these people is rock bottom on the whole. I mean, yeah. you know, you don't have to be a Thatcherite or, or think yeah. that it was, was Thatcher was right to look at her cabinet. I mean, if you, I, I watched her. Uh, couple of really good documentaries about such years. And they had these cabinet ministers, former cabinet ministers on. And the fact is they were people with some seriousness about yeah. them. You know, they'd had, or sometimes wartime experience still yeah. by the, um, and you sort of felt that they had earned a kind of place. When you look now at the people who make up our Westminster uh, village, they are, you know, they are very, very low low rent yep. you know um and uh, so and also that it's interestingly that actually uh, that happens as well when the institution in this case parliament is no longer seen as being uh as meaningful as it was which is one of the yeah yeah you know i mean essentially when the institutions go well then you know why why not just have this person in and why not just mm. let this you know person become leader why not yeah, I mean, I, like I said, when I was I was on Twitter the other day, and, and I asked people, well, look, just name a politician who you think understands the problem and who you think could devise a plan 
that would produce the intended results. Mm. I can't think of one. Mm. I can't think of any. They're all, yeah, like you say, low rent is a great way of describing them. I think this, the other thing as well, I mean, is there was a piece by Alistair Heath in The Telegraph yesterday. Alistair Heath said, uh, he's the editor of Sunday, Sunday Telegraph, and it was a piece basically going through all the various points about what's wrong and why the Tories, in his case, have got to grapple with it. But it was pretty good and also very thorough for The Telegraph, which is, after all, part of the establishment media. Um, but I was rather taken with it because, I mean, it was, you know, all of these things you say, he went through everything, the woke, uh, ideology, gradually taking over, uh, the culture wars, all of this, as well as economic. And uh, basically, and the general malaise, uh, basically, no politician will really go to any of those points. And I see it reflected like uh, I no longer have a TV. Um, I stopped paying my license a, two years ago or whatever, but I did see BBC recently because I was at someone's flat. And uh, the actual news, I watched the news, and it was the weirdest thing, actually, Carl. It sort of felt, it sort of felt quite banal. I, it sort of felt banal. I sort of thought, wait, there are huge amounts going on. Mm. And yet, wait a minute, I'm watching something which seems very, very sort of... Uh, uh, it seemed like stage managed. Yes, it was stage stage managed, but also of no real consequence. Yeah. And and I and this was local news as well. And I just was thinking, well, you know, perhaps it's perhaps because I spend all of my life in in these waters that this is actually me. But I don't think it is. But even then, why aren't these waters what the BBC is talking about? Because mm. I I I feel like we're actually further ahead of the curve than most. We're talking about real things that are quite impactful. And for some reason, the BBC is essentially giving people some kind of political sedative yeah, in order yeah. to make sure that they don't think anything's wrong as the world crumbles around them. And it's, it's, not, it's not just the fact that, of course, the government and the political system, but it's becoming apparent that everything we have is actually just junk now. Like we have arrived in the era of badly made products. Uh, here's a quick quote from this that I think just summarizes it. People don't exactly want to pay more for all that stuff. So what, is, what has to happen if everything is more expensive and consumers still want to pay the same price is that something has to be cut. And often that's going to be the quality. Even though designers may say, oh, this is just as good, the components themselves are increasingly plastic instead of metal, using glue instead of screws. There's some definite design trends that are making these things not work for very long. Yep. Mm. Everyone can see it. And we've, of course, outsourced our manufacturing to China, which isn't exactly reputed for their engineering finesse. Uh, and so the things we have are becoming of worse quality and the places in which we live are becoming of worse quality as well. Turns out that our houses are just terrible, poor quality housing, but look at the framing on this. Well, poor quality housing is costing the NHS 1.4 billion a year in treatments. Maybe I'm not worried about how much it's costing. Maybe I'm worried that we live in a junk heap. Yes. Maybe I'm worried that there's something wrong when we live in squalor. Mm. You know, I don't even care about the cost of the NHS, but apparently 11% of the houses in this country, that's two and, two and a half million homes, are of poor quality and contain more than one category one hazard under the housing, health, and safety, safety rating system. I have no idea what that even is. Uh, and this, of course, is costing the economy money. It's like, but there's something about the fact that it's humiliating mm. for us to live in a collapsing civilization. 
Yes, with the housing thing as well, the houses that are being built, uh, say take London, the houses being built there are being built almost entirely for single or yeah. maybe couples, young couple, prof- professionals, no kids. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they're all luxury. Yeah. Uh, you see. Um, but, you know, the idea that there should be a family home uh, is basically something which is uh, sort of disappearing. Mm. Um, so that's what's being built at a massive and grotesque expense. Mm. I think the thing is with living in squalor as well is that, I mean, you're talking about actual structural faults, are you here? Um, both, actually. Uh, yeah. the, the, not only is the house just generally not very pleasant, but uh, yeah, the houses themselves are of just poor quality. Mm. But uh, but again, like this is two and a half million people, according to one think tank, of young people, 1834, who just live in poor quality houses, mm. defining homes that were not in a good state of repair, where the heating, electrics, or plumbing, not really in full working order, there's damp present, they're living in very, you know, uh, houses that were old family houses that have been par- portioned up into apartments now. So they're living in smaller living arrangements. And everyone can see, and you get like uh, just things like this, just on Reddit and places. People notice. People come to this country and like, oh my god, yes, why are the houses so terrible? Mm. Like, why is this the case? I mean, this person's like, look, if I go to France, Germany, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, the houses are better and cheaper. Why is it terrible in the UK? Mm. And no one knows. No one has any answer. People speculate, but that's not to know. Decline in engineering skills, for example. Quite possibly. I mean, you know, I've often thought that when it, not just this, but even in, I remember, this is a long time ago, but when Terminal 5 opened at Heathrow, I think it was, and then it would, it basically nearly had to close again the same day because it was just in such, it was just a screw screw up. I mean, nothing worked. And I did think at the time, maybe we're seeing the kind of coming through finally um, of the complete deterioration in education mm. in schools, that people just simply don't know enough anymore. Uh, they don't have skills enough anymore. Um, but I think maybe that's a bit of a stretch from for, to this story. Quite uh, possibly, but I don't know. And I can't say that there isn't some kind of long-term knock-on effect. Mm. And even if that isn't the reason for this now, mm. it will be the reason for more of this in the future. Mm. Mm. Um, yes, people can't make a decision. Uh, they haven't been taught how to make a decision anymore. It's uh, not even that. The, the, the standards and pride in the work is all gone because mm-hmm. nobody's proud of the country because the country has been so debased in the eyes of the media, the politicians, the, the educated classes who are always talking down to them. There's no reason to be proud of anything around you. Right? Well, it's, it, there's no reason. But I think that's the difference between, you know, the poll, going back to the poll you had there. Mm. I think you mentioned... Uh, 2010 was the one that was, yeah. there'd been a, a, a big rise in people thinking Britain got worse. Well, yeah. I mean, you've just alluded to it there, but since then, you know, we've been through, well, for me, which was an absolute low point, would have been 2020 yeah. uh, during that pandemic thing, during that disastrous uh, lockdown. And then in the middle of it, we had outright attacks on everything we were during the BLM time. And I remember that was the time where colleagues of mine, family members, really thought that that was it. You know, that the level of, you know, things were terrible all around us because of the pandemic, but then there was nothing, even our very 
foundations now would be we were being cast adrift from those the statue of winston churchill being defaced exactly and statues being pulled down every museum you came across coming out with the same thing you know decolonization the british museum british library kew gardens yeah i mean it went on and on and it's still indeed going on but that of course you know of course it's going to make people feel that countries well, because, I mean, a lot of people will think, well, actually, we're not what we always thought we were. Yeah. Well, we're not what we used to be. Yes. Like, I remember in living memory when this country was much better, when we had self-confidence, mm. when we were happy to do things to a high standard. Mm. But that was, the, that was the Britain I grew up in. But the funny thing is, though, the difference is, 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 is important, is that in the 1970s, I'm sure you're too young to remember that, Bob, but I mean, the 19- I, uh, I was born in 79. So. Right. Well, in the 1970s, trust me, it was grim, right? That's what my father said. It was very, very grim. That's why he was always in a Thatcherite and not a Labour. Right. You talk about, you know, I've just been going on yeah. about, I mean, it sounds like I'm about to contradict myself, but in a way I am. But when you talk about the way that things look, the way that maybe Swindon looks now, the way that uh, London looks, wherever, uh, all the time, and you sort of think, boy, you know, has it ever, has things have ever been as grim as this? Well, actually, the seventies—you've only got to look at old footage mm. if you didn't, if you weren't around then, or even the, the movies of the time. And basically, it was kind of, yeah, it was terrible. It's it was grim, like yeah. the aesthetic was terrible. It was, you know, yeah. brown and grey and everything, very, very. Everything uh, was run down then, run, as well. incredibly run down. Yeah. Didn't have so much graffiti and all of that, but you, you know, things were run down. And it changed, whether you like what happened or not, but it certainly did change the the absolute amazing shift that happened between the 1979 and around about basically 10 years later, just a bit before that. It was extraordinary. Yeah. I know it wasn't great if you were a minor. I'm not saying that or, sure. you know, or whatever. But you talk about an an idea of decline not being inevitable. You know, that was the period. Yeah. And I'm not kidding. You know, I was uh, in the Tory party at that time and very active. You felt that you were on the winning side, you know, and Britain was standing tall and all of this. Mm. And one thing I think Thatcher was remarkable at, without wanting to do to digress too much, is that, you know, even though she never had to actually get into the culture wars, because they didn't really exist at that time, or so they thought, um, she did single-handedly kind of bring the country up in the eyes of other people. Oh, yeah. She was, she was always... I've seen loads of speeches of hers where she's just saying, no, we're British and we're better than you. But It's just the entire the framing of it. If I can just uh, finish that um, yeah. point that I was making very in a very laboured way there. The 70s were like that. Mm. However... It didn't feel as depressing, yeah. Simply because we were culturally intact, yeah. It was economic, yeah. And it could, felt like change was possible, right? Yeah, you could. Yes, well, you could line up and be socialist. You could line up with all the massive unions at the time. You could a very honourable, actually. When I think, you know, I mean, the, the unions compared were, to now, yes, yeah. compared to now, and or you could have been a capitalist. But the big argument was: should we be a, a, a socialist society or, or a capitalist one? Mm. Uh, now. That sort of, well, it might be making it's a bit of return, but it's not really a question, not in a serious yeah. way. And yet, culturally, we are all over the place yeah. and completely fragmented, but we weren't then. Mm. We weren't well, let's, then. Uh, let's carry on with how else Britain is bad quickly, shall we? What about the NHS? Are we happy with the NHS? 
Nope. Uh, 47% of British people think that the NHS will get worse in the coming years, and that's only because they're looking at recent history and saying, well, it's got worse now, hasn't it, up until this point. Um, five out of every six British respondents saying the health service is overstretched, which is more than any other country surveyed. So yeah, not, not kidding, because the number of people on waiting lists are 11% of the population. Seven and a half million people are on waiting lists in the NHS in England. That's mad, isn't it? It's incredible. Like this, is a, this is a service that's not functioning. Why is it not functioning? Well, I mean, I think one reason is just going to be simply the sheer number of people who are allowed to claim it. Yeah. Uh, because, of course, last year, the Conservative government allowed 1.2 million people to come and live here in perpetuity. Oh, I mean, look, whether it's the NHS or whether it's housing. Oh, well, let's, talk, let's talk about housing, actually. Yeah. This is very interesting. Uh, I checked these. The, the, you can see there I'm just asking, well, do you have a link for this? Isn't it interesting how 72% of Somalians in this country have government houses? That You pay for three quarters of the Somalis in this country to live in a house. Why is that yeah. the case? Yeah. Why are they here? Why are any of these people here? Why am I paying for a single one of these people to live in a house? This is mad, right? This is billions that you, the British taxpayer, pay for recent immigrants to live in government housing. Like, and we wonder why there's a decline. Yes. This is your money. This yeah. is why you're poor. This is why you can't afford this, right? And so, of course, this isn't exactly breeding a wonderful social environment. Here's just literally something I found this morning popped up in my feed, which is just awful, right? Two drug dealers got jailed for stabbing a, a, an aspiring lawyer to death in Northwest London. This, the aspiring lawyer was Sven Badzak. Good old British name, that. Uh, he got attacked by Rashid Gedel and Shiro Ambersley, who mistook him for someone else and murdered him because they thought he was someone else. We don't have to live like this. We shouldn't have to live like this. This is awful. Why are these people here? Why are they doing all of these things? But anyway, right, well, let's keep moving on, right? So it turns out that your cost of living is up uh, by 20% or so, food. So that's a fifth, almost. Uh, your food inflation has gone up. And it becomes evident that the people advising the government, uh, the economists at the Bank of England have been like, look, the era of cheap food is an end. So your house is rubbish. The streets are dangerous. You're paying for foreigners to live in this country. And you are going to have trouble feeding yourselves. So you're probably going to have to find a job, right? Well, I mean, you know, you're getting on a bit, but have you considered just being a takeaway delivery driver in your 50s? But isn't that a bit humiliating? That's the job that teenagers should be doing. And the government are just like, well, you know, the work and se pension sector is like, well, he's a delivery driver. No. It's quite extraordinarily stupid remark to make isn't it but it just shows you the yes. expectations and the level of consideration that the people of this country have so no 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 you should be looking for you i know you're coming up to retirement but uh you're probably poor because everything's going badly you probably live in a crap house and you're probably just really desperate for money so why don't you spend your weekends delivering pizzas to people who need them like just just do it but this is the, the low aspirations of this country. That everything has come into what I've just called the decline. right? And so I wrote an article about this because I think that you can see it in the people of England. You can see it on their faces as they're walking around. 
because I, I, I took uh, Peter Bogosian to a local um, cafe and I was just sitting there and just watched, watched them walking around. And he was like, yeah, I see what you mean. But they just look beaten down. Right. And then, I mean, this is just everywhere. Like this, this is a really interesting TikTok. Whereas this, uh, this kid from London or chap from London who comes to Swindon and he's just like, my God, why is this all so run down? Yep, that's a great question. Can you skip about halfway in, John, just so you can see a bit more of it, so you can see the streets? A uh, bit, bit back on that. Sorry about halfway back here. So you can just see, like you know, just the general tattiness of everything, and we'll leave that playing from it because it's just utterly depressing. That's like, okay. Why? You know, where are we going as a civilization? What are we doing? Like it didn't used to look like this. That used to be a market that used to be open every day, and it was full of things. And now it's closed. Also, I mean, like you know, I, I was in Norwich recently. You know, Norwich, which is right out on a limb, yeah. And you know, it it, it it's not a harsh, gritty urban place. And, mm. But even that was sort of tatty. It's usually you can tell from when you come in from the station. Yeah, you know, and you come in from the station. And things are not quite as they sort of should be yeah. uh, down at heel. Um, people look bad. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't want to I'll probably regret saying this, but I mean, no one cares about how they look anymore. Nope. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, that is a sure sign of basically when, when basically yep. things are kind of collapsing. Uh, you don't care. You simply don't care. It's just your own comfort that you're worried about. So we'll leave this there because this is just depressing me. Yes. We'll go on to a much nicer place. Uh, South Africa. <laughs> i tell you what, South Africa, I find it as a really scary place. I've never been there. I'm just no, someone who sees what's happening from overseas. I don't understand the cultural moment that they're in, uh, but I see things that are happening there, such as the continual rolling blackouts that they have and the, again, general degradation of their civilization i think wow is that what's happening to them happening to us are we becoming south africanized here um and that's kind of scary to me because it seems like south africa is riddled with socialism frankly um uh, but if you want to support us by the way go and watch dan and josh's chat about the economics of the ussr which is going to be relevant to this conversation because i would like to talk about the 10th anniversary of the economic freedom fighters which are a a racial communist party in South Africa that have about 10% of the vote, which is a bit scary. Uh, but of course, they're not terribly different to the ANC, who are kind of soft racial communist party. Uh, and so I just look at their politics and think, wow, I don't want that. I really don't want that. So such as what? Oh. Uh, well, such as uh, racial redistribution of land uh, and a continual beating of the drum that there is uh, an oppressive class of white people who are holding down and forever holding down the um, black natives uh, who aren't actually natives, who are also immigrants in South Africa. Uh, and yet the narrative has been set and you get people like this Julius Malema guy. Now, like I said, I'm not an expert on South African politics, so I just went to his Wikipedia page and checked him out. And He's a concerning chap. He got kicked out of the ANC, which is the, the ruling party of South Africa, um, essentially for being uh, 
an insane radical who, quote, brought the party into disrepute. Uh, and so he wants to nationalize various industries in South Africa. And I've watched a few of his speeches and a few of his pledges, and they're basically, I'm going to give you free stuff. That's the thing that he is offering his constituents. And I have to racialize this because these things are racialized. He, has, he is speaking to black identitarians, and he's saying, no, we're going to take things from the white man and give it to the black man. We're just going to do that. And, I mean, you could say, well, how did that work out for Zimbabwe, for example? Uh, not great, but it doesn't matter that it didn't work in Zimbabwe. No. He wants to do it in South Africa. Uh, and so he, um, he's you know, elected to the parliament. He's got, uh, he, after he left the ANC, he founded the Economic Freedom Fighters uh, in order to essentially try and usurp them. Uh, it gets something like 11 13% of the vote, which is not at all uh, nothing. It's enough to get him a seat in the parliament. Uh, and in fact, they got 24 seats in the parliament, which is quite a lot as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and so the thing about the Wikipedia page, though, that I thought was interesting is the repeated allusions to violence that he makes. Uh, racial violence, which I would say are concerning, right? I mean, in 2016, at a political rally, he said that, quote, the EFF were not calling for the slaughter of white people, at least for now. That's worrying, isn't it? Yes. Extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he repeated the sentiment in 2022, saying he could not guarantee I won't or I can't or won't call for the slaughter of white people at some point in the future. Right. And this guy's got 12% of the vote, does he? That's worrying. Uh, and he, he has said that, you know, um, he's going to cut the throat of whiteness. Uh, he has been accused of stoking up racial hatred, which does seem to be the case. He tweeted a number of controversial quotes by Robert Mugabe, including the only white man you can trust is a dead white man. And he was sued in 2011 for spreading hate speech in the form of a particular song, which we'll come to in a minute. So, I mean, I think this guy is a racist maniac. The BBC, <laughs> South Africa's Julius Malema celebrates 10 years of the EFF. Uh, this guy seems to be kind of genocidal, BBC. Yeah. And he does keep saying genocidal things, but they say, despite his dismal performance in school and his divisive nature, just a divisive nature, the firebrand leader of South Africa's second largest opposition party, Julius Malema has become a symbol of success for his legion of supporters. It's just a, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not surprised with the BBC. No, it's so, not surprising with the BBC, is it? It's pretty I mean, concerning. It's, you know, it's just... They, they, they sort of they, the, the words that they use. I see, I'm seeing here on this the outspoken. Yes, you know, controversial. He's a bombastic firebrand. Yeah, firebrand. He's just mildly divisive. Yeah, he's not yeah. calling for the slaughter of all white people yeah. yet, yes. but he can't guarantee that he won't do it in the future. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, he didn't do well in school, but he's currently registered for a master's degree at a respected university. Don't you know? It's all brilliant. That's great. Uh, and so he's seen as a quote. This is a quote, right? Malema is seen as something of a trendsetter. Mm, mm. Is he a trendsetter? That's very interesting. Many young people do disagree with his style of politics, but they still respect him. Hmm. This is extraordinary. I know. Uh, but 
not, you know, in yeah. the sense that it's coming yeah. from the BBC. Shocking, but not surprising. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, racism is an entirely uh, white thing. Mm. Or mm. I would imagine the people who work at the BBC, if they are, mm. you know, anything like your average woke. Yeah. Uh, basically, if you think that racism is entirely white and that it's in, actually it's impossible for other ethnic groups to be racist, then you could probably write that kind of thing. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. You would see uh, Julius Malema as a hero, mm. some kind of hero of African freedom. Um, there was apparently um, a massacre at a mine uh, in 2012 uh, where a series of... Uh, striking miners, uh, 40 of them were killed by South African police. And Julius Malema went down there with his party, uh, and the party slaughtered 15 cows and brewed traditional beer to appease the ancestors in memory of these people. And it's like, okay, fine. All I'm saying is, they aren't like us, and you don't understand them. Mm -hmm. Why are they doing that? I have no idea why they're doing that. Do we do that? No, we don't do that, right? These are two different civilizations that are interceding with each other here so anyway let's go to his uh let's go to his live coverage of celebration now he had ninety thousand people in a stadium a very trumpian style rally but with a slightly different tone oh yes i've seen this and this is where they sing the song yes yeah. this is where he sings his favorite song so yeah the huge rally uh again it is trumpian in that it is populist uh, politics, but of course, Trump has never ever said anything like Julius Malema has said. Let's watch the clip. Shoot to kill the mother, kill the poor, the farmer, kill the poor, the farmer. Well, 90,000. Yeah. 13% of the vote. Now, a lot of people are like, well, hang on, is this something to do with critical race theory or something? Like, no, no, this predates critical race theory. Uh, this uh, is an old song from the 90s uh, under apartheid that was used by revolutionaries to uh, boost their spirits. Uh, and there's a lot of defense of this. Now, this used to be hate speech, that song. Uh, sorry, let me just go back. It used to be hate speech, um, but not anymore. Uh, it was declared hate speech in 2011, uh, 2010, sorry. He was convicted of hate speech. The song was declared illegal. But for some reason in 2022, it was made legal again. So, you know, victory for free speech there. Uh, this uh, Shoot the Boa song does not constitute hate speech. I mean, I just feel really concerned that that was the thing that one of the trendy parties in South Africa was just singing in a stadium. I mean, I would consider that concerning, but what do I know? Uh, there are lots of people who have got lots of defenses of this, though. Oh, well, what does kill the boa mean? What does it mean? What do you think it means? Peter? Yes. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm very literal-minded about these yeah, things. Right. Well, I, I didn't think that there was much depth to it, but this is apparently a liberation song. It's a song about liberation, you see. I mean, you get lots of uh, the many lies around, quote, kill the boa. Yeah, I know. I, I can't believe that uh, 
this was never meant to be taken literally, you know. What is the level of uh, coverage of him on mainstream broadcast news? Very little, as far as I can tell. Uh, the that was the only BBC article I found on. Yeah, on the and that's on their website. Yeah, and it doesn't mention the Kill the Boa song, because why would it? Um, but uh, the, this person from South Africa said, "Oh, well, it's never meant to be taken literally. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, just a song about shooting Boas who are white men, white settlers." Uh, and uh, this this song had been sung throughout the early 1990s in a language the whites did not understand, and so it did not provoke controversy. Yes, of course it didn't. If you didn't know what they were saying. Uh, but uh, he says in his comments, a video clip was played to the court, and the chap in question argued that the liberation movement's conception of Boa had always meant the enemy is a system of white supremacy. Oh, well, that's reassuring, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's, it's just a system of white supremacy, so shoot the system of white supremacy. Right, okay, gotcha. It's never meant any individual on the basis of his or her color. Uh, even as we chanted these slogans during the armed struggle, they have never driven us to the houses of the whites or to the farmers as individuals to kill them. Oh, really? <laughs> That's very reassuring. Uh, and the ANC say, quote, we have absolutely no policy to kill farmers. Absolutely none. That's very reassuring. If you look at our own politicians here, who, who would even mount a defense of, say, like the white farmers? Yeah. Well, no. Donald Trump. Well, no, yeah, okay. I meant in Britain. <laughs> the, I mean, uh, well, yeah, no, in Britain. Uh, absolutely not. It doesn't matter Farage, what's right if, or wrong. If yeah. You can consider him a politician these days. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he's the only one and for some reason can't get elected to Westminster. So let's talk about farm attacks in South Africa because there is a weird number of utterly brutal, completely barbaric. The most savage Mongol style massacres that you will ever see. Now, this happens on a daily basis in South Africa. Apparently, in 2022, there were 400 attacks on privately owned farms by whites in South Africa. Uh, this led to 50 mur 55 murders. Uh, so, not all attacks are, of course, successful, but all attacks are an attempt to murder people. And if you read any of the individual accounts, your stomach will turn. Uh, literally like boiling children, like murdering, raping, just torturing for hours because these are remote places. And so if the people who are doing these murders can get in, then that's what happens. I mean, in 2023, there have been 77 attacks in the first 90 days. So it's almost one a day. Now, I encountered many people on Twitter saying, well, there's no connection between the chap in front of 90,000 people chanting, shoot the boa, kill the farmer, and the persistent and ongoing attacks. It's just a completely parallel coincidence. Now, the left. I thought words were violence. Well, exactly. The left, of course, <laughs> would otherwise call this stochastic terrorism. Yeah. Uh, and I don't believe there's no uh, link there. And uh, you must be a bloody fool. If you do believe, there's no link to that. Uh, if I were a South African, I'd be asking, why do we have to put up this? Why do we have to put up with this? Why is this our politics? Uh, personally, if I was in South Africa, I'd leave, but I'm not uh, not in any position to advise anyone on to do anything, but I just think it's awful. Um, if you want more information on this, go and watch Lauren Southern's Farmlands documentary in which she speaks to some of the survivors of these things. Um, it's just, they, they are just the most hideous things in the world. 
Now, this is turning into a rather grim and serious podcast, Peter. Well, no, no, but I mean, I, I, one thing's for sure. I'm certainly going to try and find out more about that. But I mean, because obviously, I'm, you know, it's obviously it's clear. I know very little about the issue. Oh, it's just hideous. So you know, it's just uh, appalling. Yes, uh, South Africa is the only country that has affirmative action for the majority. Weirdly. Uh, but anyway, we'll leave we'll leave that there. Like I said, I'm no expert on South Africa, but from what I can see, I'm I don't like it. Uh, so anyway, let's let's go on to America and hopefully do something that's a little more entertaining, which is talk about Americans talking about their own history. Is that we briefly saw was that Al Sharpton? Uh, just you saw. will see Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton. He used to be enormous. Yeah. He's a huge guy. He's so very he's... much thinned down. Oh yes, he yeah. has. Yes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, sorry, I don't want to he, preempt. He, he hasn't uh, wisened up, though, right, okay. because one, one thing about Americans that has become apparent is they don't really know anything about America, as in why America is what it is and how it came to be. And Al Sharpton actually uh, was the inspiration for this segment because he kind of put the crown on top of the, uh, the, the cherry on the cake. Uh, the the angel on the tree. It was just the most amazing statement that I think we'll get to. Before we do, if you want to support us, go and watch the uh, Epochs on the Siege of Waco. It's an interesting part of American history, but of course it does an excellent job. I think he's with Josh there as well. Um, but anyway, so let's let's begin this with just this article from the New York Post where that 41,000 Americans in all 50 states and Washington, D.C. were surveyed, and they don't know much about American history. Only 27% of those under 45 could demonstrate a basic knowledge of American history. Only four in 10 Americans passed the little exam that they were given. And the study also revealed that 15% of American adults were able to correctly note the year the U.S. Constitution was written. 50. 15. Uh, this was 1787. Now, if you're not an American, why would you be expected to know that? Mm -hmm. but if you're an American, you think that would be something you would know. Uh, and only 25% could correctly state that the Constitution has had 27 amendments. Again, if you're not an American, why would you know that? Uh, a quarter of the survey takers were unaware that freedom of speech was guaranteed under the First Amendment. 57% did not know that Will Woodrow Wilson was the president during World War I. Uh, the distressing results show that American education is not working. The students are not asked to memorize dates, events, and leaders, which polls show that they are not retained in adulthood. It's like, yeah. And uh, I found another article on the LA Times, which I thought was interesting. And this is just remarkable, right? Most Americans do not know which countries the U.S. fought against in World War II. Well, you see, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, yes, uh, I used to write for the Yellow Times actually when I was when I was living uh, there, and I, I was just wondering how you know what is the kind of uh, trajectory here? Yeah, did they know a lot more ten years ago? I mean, the students, you know, did they know? Would they have known mm. who America was fighting? I don't. I mean, I should hope so. I would hope so. But I mean, before we get too smug about this, uh, I'm not saying it's any better in Britain. Yes, I, <laughs> it used to be, but um, I think you might struggle now. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. This is uh, yeah. For our American viewers, don't worry. I don't think that young people in Britain know about Britain's history I, mm. at all. Um, but uh, of course, you know they can't point to Ukraine or Belarus on a map. And uh, they stare blankly if you ask them who represents them in the state legislature or what rights are protected by the First Amendment. Uh, they say that there's nothing particularly new about this, but I would say that it's probably getting worse. Yes. Um, I think that this is uh, not good. In 2019, just 13% of eighth graders 
were deemed to be proficient in history based on the National Assessment of Educational Progress, an exam sometimes called America's Report Card. Only 22% were found to be proficient in civics. That's really bad. No, it's, it's, it's simply important. But you see, the, now they have an excuse not to know. Well, But they can just simply say, well, why would I want to know that kind of, you know, white racism? supremacist bullshit? Yeah. You know, you can almost yeah. hear them saying it, you know. And you'll get things like the 1619 Project, mm. where they will deliberately try to pervert history mm. in order to make sure that you don't really know what happened. Now, this I found is a particularly fascinating thing, because the 1619 Project was a... a, a attempt at historical revisionism by a journalist called Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, who writes for the New York Times. And this was highly critiqued and re refuted by historians as soon as it came out, because it hinges around a key lie. The lie is that the American uh, Revolution was fought to keep slavery. That's right, yeah. 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 No, no it no. wasn't. Yeah. Uh, for anyone who is wondering, um, the British Empire didn't attempt to start outlawing slavery until something like 1808. Yep. Uh, so the US had been independent for at least a generation and wasn't successful in abolishing slavery until 1830. Mm. So no, this is just a complete lie. And this person was a fact checker on that. And they say, well, look, I, I was like, I'm in total, com I, I totally agree that we should rewrite American history in order to characterize all of America as racist yeah. and it has been. But the problem is if we start on false narratives, then people will refute our entire project. And so it wasn't that she was like, well, maybe we shouldn't lie about these things. She was just like, well, maybe we shouldn't have a lie that overturns our entire project. In fact, she says this, uh, both sets of inaccuracies worried me, but the revolutionary war statement made me especially accurate, uh, anxious. So, I mean, there are obviously other inaccuracies, uh, but that particular one about the revolutionary war. Overall, the 1619 Project is a much-needed corrective to the blindly celebratory histories that once dominated our understanding of the past. Histories that wrongly suggested that racism and slavery were not a central part of US history. I was concerned that critics would use the overstated claim to discredit the entire undertaking. So far, that's exactly what's happened. Overstated claim. Yes, yeah, yes. So, it's not like there isn't a general hatred of the United States that is pervading through the history. And so, I mean, I'm not particularly what I'm not particularly surprised that young people are just not interested in history. But the thing is, it, she writes for the New York Times. She does, yeah. But uh, also, it's become a New York Times project. Yes, it was. You know, it is. It, project the yes, yeah. it is something that they initiated. Yeah. This is the New York Times, which is, you know, the most respected paper in America, at least it was. Yeah, and without wishing to digress, the decline. What you know, that's been a theme of this week's podcast. I'm afraid it the, is you know, the decline. The decline of the New York Times is just yep. something to behold. It is outright propaganda. It is yes. complete and hatred of Britain yes. as well. Hatred of America. Hatred yeah. of Britain. Hatred of the West. Mm. Hatred of anything that de that demonstrates excellence. You know, mm. success, strength, competence. Anything like that. And indeed, as well, what it does there, what has happened there, is a um, famous case last year when basically the more junior staff, mm -hmm. if you like, get to reporters get together and make sure that, say, like an editor they disapprove of loses her job, which is what happened. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, you know they have this kind of power to do it. You know, 
management are sort of like that, frightened these people. Mm. Um, but I think it's just it's just one of the big sort of you know icon cultural icons of American life, which has completely changed. Yep. You know, um, in the past ten years. No, that's absolutely correct. And it, I mean, and again, just the quality of people is declining. Mm. You can see that the people writing are not as good as the writers of previous generations. I mean, whenever you go back and watch just television debates, mm. you do not see the level of articulation of the point that you used to then. You can't see that anywhere now. No, actually, America, American culture, I would say during the, what many people call the real kind of, the, you know, apotheosis of uh, uh, imperialism, American, the American empire, 1950s and 60s, they would regularly have dramas mm. on CBS mm. and NBC and these sort of networks. Um, they would have cello concerto, with, you know, Pablo Casals mm. playing, yeah. things like this. High culture. Yes, exactly. Not all the time, but I mean, it would yeah. be there and it wouldn't be considered weird yeah. that it was on. You'd have William F. Buckley Jr. Yes. with his like, you know, hour-long philosophical discussions yes. with leading thinkers of the time that like, the audience would be expected to keep up with. Yes, exactly. And you just don't, don't get that now. It has sort of obviously to kind of, the, the problem is I think now is, as I say, is that people have been given a kind of excuse um, to not know anything about it. Plus, uh, well, she's chicken and egg thing, isn't it? Mm. But for example, if you're going to do this kind of thing, if you're going to basically try to subvert the whole foundation of your history, uh, it does help if people don't know what you're doing. It so does. Like, it's, it does. It's exactly If you think of Britain, how many people, how many, take some of the uh, anniversaries we've had recently. So uh, Magna Carta, how many really know what that's about? Very few, I think, actually. Can't yeah. now. You know, the King James Bible was about 10 years or so ago now. Mm -hmm. uh, big anniversary. Um, why do... What is Why was that the significance yeah. of, of the King James Bible? I'm, I'm sure it's a loss on most people. And, you know, there was a great book I had as a kid, which I'm sure you did too, called 1066 and all that. And it was a kind oh, of, no, it was a historical, it was written in the 1930s. And it was an historical, uh, very gentle parody of history teaching. Lovely book. But everyone knew 1066 said, well, of course, that's when the Normans came and everything. Right. I don't think you could have that title now because I think even that title, and we're coming up to a thousand years, a thousand years. There's, that's a terrible, there's a terrible omen there somewhere, actually, Carl. You know, like we're coming up, aren't we, to a thousand years? 1066 to, uh, well, actually, 2166. Yeah. yeah. So we're actually, we're over it, aren't we, already? Yeah, we must. Well, yeah. no, it's 2066. 20, yes, 2066. No, we would be 2166, won't we? No, the, the, we're 2023 at the moment. Yes. So of course we, we are. 20, so yes. 43 years. Yeah, time. yeah. So, but the thing is that actually might be in, 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 our, in our lifetimes, you know, if we're... Well, yes, but I mean, can you imagine... Lucky enough. You know, what? That's yeah. almost like a, like a pair of, you know, is it's like a... Bookends. A bookend. Yeah. It's like, the, you know, might it be, mm. you know? Well, you will be. I won't be here. But well, I doubt it. You know, I'll, I'll be... More important, your children so. will be here. Yeah, my hopefully my children will be here. Yeah. My grandchildren, if I'm lucky enough. But uh, but you are you are completely right about this. It's easy to fool people about history if they don't know anything about history. Right? I saw this going around the other day, which I mean, this is just everything about 
young people now, right? Women weren't even allowed to have credit cards until 1974. So, you know, it's empowering that I've maxed mine out. Ha ha ha. Um, Visa was created in 1976. I went and looked this up, right? So I just looked at the history of credit cards. The first credit card was launched in 1958, right? But she's, she's acting like credit cards were something invented by the ancient Greeks. And we were just like, oh yeah, women weren't allowed them until 1974. They were created in 1958, so 18 years or 16 years before women were allowed them, right? But that's only because they weren't on a wide scale. Yeah. Like the first one went out to 60,000 people, and it wasn't until Visa was created in 1976 that there was a nationwide credit card in America anyway. So to act like, oh, women have been oppressed. Like, Shut up, you know nothing. Yeah. You know, this is the thing. You are an idiot. And now you've got, you know, massive amounts of credit card debt and you're bragging on social media as if this is some win. Is this TikTok or? Yeah, it's a TikTok video that I took a screenshot from. Um, and it was just everything about the modern world is just a tremendous mistake. Also, I saw one very similar to this. So obviously, you know, she's. Dancing she's, in the ruins of our civilization. Yes, exactly. Yes, but also sort of essentially using it as an excuse. There was, yes. there was one I saw, again, TikTok, and it was a woman giving it was marital a advice. Do you do... Oh, was this Mia Khalifa? Yes. Yes, I And saw she this. was more or less yeah. sort of saying, you know, yeah. don't worry if you want to leave, just don't worry, what's the big deal? She said, she, I've been married three times, take yes. advice from me. It's like, no, that's why you don't take advice from well, me. Well, exactly. And also, if, it, if, it's, if it's such a little deal, why is she bothered to go through it three times? Yeah, that's you another know? great why? question. Why? Just, just, just... just you know, you know, stay with the, you know, live with the guy or whatever. Yeah. Mm. And so I thought I would get to uh, Al Sharpton, who, as you say, he has lost a lot of weight, hasn't he? Uh, I thought we'd just watch this because it's just funny. You know, I, I thought about this as I was looking through the indictment last night, and uh, I grew up and started my activism in a section of Brooklyn called Brownsville, and walking to the subway many mornings, some of the guys in the neighborhood would say, "Rev, I caught a case." I have never walked down that block and somebody said, I caught three cases. I mean, this is just as low as it gets. I've never heard of three cases on one individual in three jurisdictions. So this is serious. But on the other side of it, one day our children's children will read American history. And can you imagine our reading that James Madison or Thomas Jefferson tried to overthrow the government so they can stay in power. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at American history and how it will play out is going to be very important. The sad part about this to me is that this is not a man that is facing all this because he believed in a political position or political policy or cause. I've seen people go down the wrong side for a cause. This we'll leave him there because he's obviously <laughs> talking about the Donald Trump indictment, but it's just like, <laughs> I can't believe James Madison or Thomas Jefferson would have a dream of overthrowing government. Are you, what are you mad? Do you not know what country you're in? Like, have you do know who these people are? Like, it's genuinely funny at this point, but it's comical. Like, I mean, all the people on MSNBC, not yes. one of them are like, well, they were revolutionaries. Yes, but these people don't challenge him at all on anything. In any way, shape, or form. You know. Because Donald Trump somehow is bad and therefore. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just, I mean, Honestly, just everything yes. everywhere is just pathetic, actually. Yes. You know, it's like, what is happening here? Why is he on TV 
saying, oh, I can't believe George Washington would be a revolutionary. Oh, yeah, as if he'd maybe, you know, be crazy if he let an army, <laughs> <laughs> like, he didn't cross the Delaware in the middle of winter or anything. You bitch, what are you doing? Actually, you say, it's interesting. I don't know has it, whether he's gone through some kind, of, he's just, you know, got a new career, but he was just a rabble rouser, if I yes. remember, in the 1970s. Yeah. You know, he was sort of turn up at everything. And uh, indeed, he was parodied in a wonderful Tom Wolfe book called Bonfire of the Vanities, um, where he just used to kind of attach himself to various cases yeah. that were to do with race. He's been race grifting That's literally right. decades. But you're talking about the 70s and 80s. Uh, and here he is, sort of, you know, sort of, it's almost like he's maybe trying to become a political commentator or something. Well, he is, but no, notice, start. But notice what he's appealing to him, right? He's saying, you know, um, He's appealing to the existing structures of the United States, right? The existing narrative of the United States. Oh, Donald Trump is trying to overthrow the Republic, and therefore, you know, the Republic must be a good thing. But hang on, you spent your entire life saying that this was bad. Mm -hmm. You spent your entire life demonizing, stigmatizing. So why are you now on the side of those structures? And it's because there is some kind of insurgent force in our civilizations that is taking control of the narrative of the civilizations. And now it wants to legitimize itself by connecting itself artificially to these histories mm. and saying, well, could you believe that Thomas Jefferson would be a revolutionary? Yeah, <laughs> I could actually. <laughs> yeah. But the, you can see how the, the whole thing is just lies upon lies upon lies upon lies. Other thing as well with this, this kind of example, but also just generally with the historical ones you're talking mm. about, is it's not just that you don't have to learn about history. Um, the idea of fact, uh, at, well, basically the idea of truth as expressed in facts, yes. um, you can now, you know, it is contentious. So basically you can sort of say that is entirely just uh, truth is a supremacist thing. Mm. Or you know facts are these these kind of it's a bit like saying yep. mathematics is you know racist, which is what you're yep. hearing more and more now. And so if you can basically if you just take the carpet from underneath all of this, mm. you're left with nothing. You're left you're left with the ability to mold people into whatever form you want them to take, right? So you can have people thinking that America is always a racist project, but we need to be considerate of the founding fathers who had, you know, who, who are in some way authoritative and have set up the democracy that, I mean, do you remember AOC uh, called it our sacred capital building? I'm like, yeah, but that's not an American frame. Mm. Like the Americans do not believe government is sacred. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what a monarch thinks. Yeah. And they think that they, literally the, it was instituted by God and therefore that underpins it. No, the, the idea of the, the United States is that the people come together and form a government of their own choosing, which means the government is utterly temporal and is totally available to be dismantled by the people if they choose to dismantle it. Yes. There's no spiritual authority behind the United States government, and that's the point of yes, the United States. Yes, yes. So the, these people are just totally off the reservation, yes. but they are not Americans as a normal person would understand what an American is. And so it's just like, the, the, it doesn't matter what the continuum of truth that people are trying to adhere to is. Mm. You can just make people into anything that you want. Women, oh, they've always been oppressed. Couldn't get credit cards until before there was a national credit card, you see. And so, why are you even talking? You know, and so, anyway, it's all just lies upon lies upon lies. And well, I think, you see, when you say you can make people, you know, into what you want them 
to be that sort of implies that there's a plan um or you could sort of take the approach which tends to be mine which is sort of you know the same genus really mm. uh, which is that this is an attack at the most fundamental level on everything that we are yes um and essentially then you could say well by whom where's it going um cultural marxism whether it's the long yeah. march to the institution same thing uh, it's all of those things, isn't it's it? Essentially, yes. Basically, this goes right down to the trans issue. It's essentially to shake the foundations of what we even think we are biologically. Yes, yes. It's to, it's hugely successful. It is. It's, it's the probably the most successful political project of the last fifty years, mm. and it it is actually concerning that for some reason, like the people who are charged with defending against these things such as the Conservative Party or the Republican Party, are unable to do so. They don't know how. This has been such an oblique attack on them. They've been totally blindsided by it. They're just like, oh. They don't know how, but also, to an extent, they have also been slightly captured. Well, <laughs> you it, know, the, I mean... The Republicans less so, I would yeah, say. Yeah, less the so. The Conservatives far yeah. You know, the conservatives well, are willing. Basically. Yeah, actually, it wasn't just... It was actually self-capture, if yeah. there is such a thing. They sort of went ahead and said, right, we want these people don't during Cameron's time. We want yeah. these people, and essentially, many of them weren't. It's not just me being colloquial, saying, "Oh, they're not really concerned." They actually weren't. I no. mean, they were Lib Dems and things like that. I mean, David Cameron literally said he decided to modernise mm. the Conservative Party because it was pale, male, and stale. And so he was like, "Right, we're going to have minority shortlists or women shortlists." It's like, but that's Labour Party policy. Mm. That's literally what the Labour Party do. Why are you doing it? But anyway, yeah, so uh, good luck, America. <laughs> it's like good luck here, good you luck know, South see, Africa, good luck everywhere. These kind of, you know, these little uh, box pops, you see yeah. them often on, are very, very, very funny. I remember seeing one during the uh, the Clinton-Trump uh, 2016 yeah. election. And uh, these girls, this is a very clever guy, actually, because he was very convincing. But he was just saying, um, we've just heard, you know, that... Uh, Hillary Clinton has announced she's going to introduce Sharia law uh, <laughs> to the uh, United States Based? as a, as a woman. Yeah. You know what is your view on that? And of course, they 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 were literally saying, "Well, if Hillary says that it's a good thing for women, then yeah, I'm with that." You know, amazing. They just they didn't know. But then yeah. again, I mean, you know, I have to say that I'm increasingly you know, amazed at what younger people don't know about our history. Now. But I think there's been a sort of deliberate attempt to detach them from yes. the moral content of our own history mm. in order to make sure that they don't feel like they're the possessors of it, mm. right? Because they should feel like they own our culture and that they have an obligation and a responsibility to uphold it, to continue it on into the future. So their children, that they should want to have, will also possess this accumulation of good things that we have ourselves been the inheritors of and they just don't they feel like they're nowhere people who don't belong in any place in time and who don't understand the difference between the past the present and the future well actually nowhere people interesting uh you know i would say the other way is that they i think you're being you know that's sort of one negative way of saying you could say they're anywhere people who think they're so wonderful that they can actually settle down somewhere, wherever <laughs> they are in the world. Yeah. They, you know, I do not need neighborhoods. I do not need roots. I do not need this, that, the other. I, my individual, 
my, my individual talent, my creativity, what I am, you know, uh, this will basically flourish wherever I am in the world. Mm. And really, you know, these people with the David Goodhart anyways, uh, they exist, you know. I mean, I remember I was really struck by this, actually. When I used to live in Woolwich, um, I lived in these flats, and uh, it was full of, like, young professional kind of anywhere type. I mean, they were all kind of, uh, you know, Remainers and all, all mm. of that. Um, but they were very unneighbourly. Mm. The older people were always neighbourly. Yeah. And indeed, people who would come from other countries actually were neighbourly. But these young kind of woke type, they, it was all in their head. It was all theory, if you know what I mean, Carl. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, on a day-to-day -day level, they wouldn't have dreamt of volunteering to do something, yeah. for example. They could barely say hello, good morning. It was all, they were so wrapped up in themselves, yeah. you know. There's a distinct level of vanity to this anywhere person, isn't there? Yeah, it's a sort of conceit, you know, yeah. exactly. The the absolute, you know, I am uh, a person of infinite creativity and therefore all these things, family, neighborhood, nation, all of these things will put a constraint on that. These somehow. are drags on me. Yeah. It's not that I could, should be obligated to other people. Exactly. It's actually they're a problem that I need to shear away from me. Yes, exactly. You know, to fly free like the butterfly yes. that I am. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes, yeah. and I'm very fortunate. You see, you see, uh, you know, uh, 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 basically parents kind of egging that on, you know, in kids yeah. uh, now. But that is essentially the difference between the kind of urban sort of increasingly what we would now call woke, but they were originally weren't uh, anywhere types, you know. And uh, of course, you know, it's interesting you were saying about how we owe our culture something. Uh, People of a conservative mind have always been greater at organizations and uh, volunteering mm -hmm. and giving, you know, organizing the fate and all of yeah. that stuff. Just you know, local community. Yes, all of that, not getting any money necessarily out of it. Um, far better than the left. I totally agree. Um, let's get some comments because I've got lots of comments. Um, do we have video comments today, John? Right, okay. So just normal comments. Uh, Right, so Justin says, good to see Peter. The New Culture Forum is very important and does great work. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you, Justin. And uh, Kiwi says, excellent guests recently, very chaffed. Oh. Thank you. Thank and then nothing embarrassing about the fact that I couldn't work out 1066 and 2066. <laughs> Not yet, but maybe there are a few. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be coming some coming in. Uh, so anyway, on the first segment, Maria Manzi says, sadly, I think in many ways, society has passed the decline and is now a slow motion car crash crumpling against the wall. Can it be fixed or should it be left to be burnt to the ground? Is the sad, stark choice left? I do rather hope to be wrong. Well, I mean, I think this is a conversation one's having all the time, like with uh, uh, my own friends, for example, who are not involved in politics. Mm. And it comes down to this whole Benedictine option, with, you know, Rod Dreher's book, which, uh, you know... I haven't read it. Oh, uh, well, it's basically... Yes, it is, actually. And he's done more since it, along the lines of how do you live through the decline of a civilization yeah. but the benedictine option is basically saying take the best of what you have of us all the things you sequester them away in monasteries basically. yes right, the name yeah. of the rose material yeah, yeah. Uh, you know basically dark age material yeah. and people are doing that people say well actually all i have to do is you know like a friend of mine I mean, one of my senior fellows actually philip uh is a great uh, collector of first editions, right? That he's always done that. Suddenly, he's actually 
found that he's doing a political thing. Mm. He's now going out and collecting first editions of the various people who are having these stupid uh, trigger warnings put on the books. Yeah. It's like an Orwellian act. And he wrote a piece in spite about this and saying, you know, this is actually what you should maybe do. So people are doing this. Or, for example, collecting together, I've heard of people collecting together physical uh, CDs of music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because, so, yeah. And, and the same with movies as well, actually. Yes. Because one of the things about the digital era is that streaming is an insecure medium. Yeah. Uh, if Netflix just takes it off, then it's gone. Gone. And, well, also your iCloud and your... And, mm. uh, it, you know, the music, I think it's yeah. fantastic. One, you know, if you get these contraptions like Alexa or whatever it is. It is a technological uh, marvel. Yes, it's a te technological marvel. But then if I lose it, it's, it's kind of gone. Yeah. I've, I have got row upon row of mm. vinyl records, mm. and I kind of cart them around wherever I go if I yeah, move, yeah. simply because I sort of think, well, actually, you just don't know when the thing goes up in flames. That's exactly mm. right. And, and this is the re one of the reasons I get real books rather than Kindle or mm. audio books. It's just, you know, you're never going to be able to get rid of it, yeah. you know, unless, yeah. of course, you burn it. But like, yeah. but it's, you, I, I totally agree with you. Though. This, it's, it's especially bad with streaming services, actually, and they want everything to be an on-demand streaming service. But that just means that the people in charge of the streaming service have complete curation and control over everything that you can consume. Mm. And I actually don't want that. Mm. You know, I would actually like to be in control of my own uh, con consumation yes. when it comes to these things. Um, but the, the, the point that Maria is making here, um, I've come to the conclusion myself uh, that history is, the, the Whig view of history is, is wrong. Actually, it's not a straight line upwards. Oh. Uh, I, I've come to the conclusion that civilizations are cyclical. Right, uh, and I I do think those people who in the early twentieth century were saying, "Well, look, we're on a bit of a downswing here, aren't we?" Uh, well, I think it's undeniable we're on a downswing, and essentially things are going to get worse before they get better, uh, and so I'm not sure things can be fixed. Well, uh, yes, um, and I agree that we, what we've got to do is that that Benedictine option is. Preserve what you can preserve, but just get ready for the collapse. Yeah, but the implication again of the Benedictine, the Benedictine option is that you are preserving these things for the time when they can come out yeah. again. You know, and and I think that that is obviously what one, you know, has to hold to when when you look about when you talk about you know the cyclical decline mm -hmm. and uh, the, everyone talks about the Roman Empire, for example. Yeah. There are such you know. Extraordinary similarities. I mean, you know, the androgyny aspect is always an aspect yeah. of decline in in uh, in civilizations. Mm. What are we obsessing about all the time now? It's a form of androgyny. It's mm. a form of sexual confusion. But also, the the the, the lack of duty is one real yeah. concern. Yeah. Like nobody like what one one reason the Roman Empire couldn't raise armies like it used to is that landowners would essentially lie to the state about the number of men who worked on their estates. And so they wouldn't be able to conscript them back mm. to the army. But then also you've got like parallels like World War I and World War II in the invasions of Attila, uh, where this was basically a Europe-wide conflict that was happening. And it was hundreds of thousands of people on each side. Like a, a massive European civil war happened between the Romans and Attila, where all of the tribes that were existing in Europe at the time had to be aligned one way or another. So you have this massive world ending war 
and then a period of about 70 years or so mm. decline afterwards. And it, honestly, it does feel like a lot of what's happening now. Yes. Actually. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's quite concerning. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I do think this is just a kind of history repeating. But, uh, but anyway, Gianni says, I'm fairly sure the political class is well aware of the problem, but have a vested interest in not fixing it. Well, that's also an issue, isn't it? Yes, I, sp- I, I suppose so. Or, or actually just completely and utterly self-absorbed and opportunistic. Yeah. You know, that in fact, you know, it never, it never, it sound, I sound naive when I say this, but, uh, never ceases to amaze me how people do choose politics as a career i mean and say well, in that case i better get some principles yes. Do you know what i mean yeah, it, yeah. it is listen, uh, you yeah. think no surely come on people you must want to do this out of convictions not necessarily not oh necessarily. I've, I've heard some direct stories about this one, one chap i knew who was an advisor in in these inner circles said that um he, he went to Eton, and one one of the one of his classmates became a labor party politician and he was like but you're a libertarian why were you doing the lip? I just want to be able to say I've been in Parliament. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say it. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Well, it's a little, not unlike Boris Johnson. Yeah, in a way yeah. he he lost interest maybe when he got the job. Yeah, but but because he's actually got it. He that's all he wanted. But, the, but there's there's just no incentive for him to actually do anything. I mean, like Rishi Sunak. Imagine if Britain goes totally south, everything collapses. You were literally like you know starving wasteland. Well, Rishi Sunak actually has somewhere he can go and he's also a billionaire yeah yeah so yeah. why does he care what's the motivation for rishi Sunak to fix britain yes like, why yeah. would he care yeah but he's not trapped here it's, it's, anyway. no, but i don't think really people do feel that he does care in that way because they don't even present themselves in that way anymore no. they present yeah. themselves as like for example liz truss during her kind of campaign was saying mm. I will deliver, I will deliver. And I was sort of getting really buffed and tufted about this. I was sort of sitting watching it thinking, look, you're not, you're not a kind of new CEO of some, you know, yeah. company. You're not that. That is not what a country is, even though everyone's meant to say that's, that's what we need. No, you're not that. I will deliver on my promise. No, that's actually not what I want from a prime minister. Actually. Speaking like regional manager. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I deliver. I've always delivered. And, he, Rishi Sunak, is very much like that technocratic approach, oh. you know, he says, you know, this is what we do, and here's my PowerPoint and all the rest of it. <laughs> I'm not, I, hey, I'm, gang, we're going to make things, oh, shut up, Rishi. I just don't respect you. I just don't respect yeah. you. <laughs> I'm just so sick of him. Yeah. Uh, Kevin's got a great point here, actually. Uh, he says, another reason for the, the squalor is because the latest generations are never taught by their parents the skills they needed to deal with life. I grew up watching my dad do jobs around the house, my mum cooking. Mm. Mothers taught their daughters to cook, clean, sew, knit, and keep a good home in order, while the boys were taught to do basic jobs around the house of fixing things and garden the car. Uh, as a result, the current generation have no clue how to improve their own homes or even feed themselves properly. But I mean, there's, well. but there, there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. What uh, Kevin says. Uh, Kevin says, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of truth. I mean, uh, people, kids actually do not know what certain vegetables are. You know, um, they don't know, they have never had, but also people are so distant now from the source of the things that they like their food. Um, and they don't particularly care. I mean, you know, again, going back to the flats where I lived in Woolwich, um, these very same people, 
I talked about earlier, um, I was amazed that everything was delivered. Mm. So like even their breakfast was delivered. Yep. Even the breakfast came from delivery or whatever. Yeah, it was. that's crazy. Though. And you just sort of think, thing. are you so, I mean, you know, I'm sorry, you, how lazy can you be? But it's, it's the life of the most vain aristocratic class that's ever existed, right? So, I mean, at least in previous eras, aristocrats would go out hunting. Yeah. You know, they'd yeah. go fight wars. Yes. You know, but what do ours do? Ours sit around fanning themselves and congratulating themselves on how brilliant they are. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Bring, bring back the actual bloody knights. <laughs> I'd rather be a peasant, you know, and at least, oh, look, the knight's going for Brilliant. That's good. You know, yeah. at least he's out of my hair for a month. You know, yeah. I would at least rather that, you know, than yeah. serving this absolutely pathetic class of elites that we have now. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Eric says, Carl, as an engineer, I can tell you it's a matter of designed obsolescence. Consumer products are designed to meet the warranty coverage period and then start breaking down, which causes the consumers to purchase more products and continues the cycle. Yeah, I've heard about planned obsolescence. Uh, not being an engineer, I can't speak to it, but I've got no doubt, cynically, that that's the case. Although, the, going against that point, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, mm. there are a whole host of things now which don't break down anymore. Well, go on. Why what? TV, for example. Hmm. TV so ever. I, my parents had a Radio Rentals TV. Do you remember those? Uh, I'm uh, a bit young. No, they, they, used, they used to rent their television. Really? Everyone, a lot of people did. And what that meant is part of the deals used to call up the shop when it broke down, which was quite frequently. Oh, the telly's gone on the blink. Now, televisions never go on the blink. Do cars break down much? I've no idea. Don't think so. But anyway, so I'm just taking issue with that planned obsolescence thing. Um, well, I'll, I'll leave that hanging there. I don't know either way. Um, Tom says, I worked in the sexual health clinic in, north, in the north in the NHS. We had about 80 calls a day and about seven appointments each day to book in. So you can see the demand and the supply there. Mm. He's got seven slots, but he gets 80 calls every day. And he said, I left it oh. years ago and it's only gotten worse, uh, which I believe. Um, uh, Beggar Hero says, as an American, the thing that distorts our history more than our, is our presentism or simply using our morals in the present to critique the past. It shows the cowardice of the present of fighting with dead men who made hard choices that spoiled brats wouldn't make. God, that's a good comment. Mm. That's a brilliant comment. Having moral arguments with the dead. Yes. Constantly. Yeah. Yes. Guaranteed to win all of those, aren't you? That's a bloody good comment, Beg Hero. Um, RJ says, a lot of the media and elites have been covering up the real history, like with Emmeline Pankhurst. Yes, that terrorist who was going against what women wanted. Uh, people have been pushing the narrative that she won the vote for women. However, the complete opposite happened. Constant crazy antics and the bombing of Lord George's house almost lost them the vote. Uh, I would say a lot of what has been going on in Britain at the moment, uh, a, a lot of that has been going on in Britain at the moment. The British government never pushes British culture and our history and instead allows ideologues to rewrite it in their image. Yes. Well, the British government never pushes uh, the idea of pushing our history. Yeah. Is just a, is a revolutionary concept, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I they would consider it shameful. Yes. I remember once uh, when I was back in uh, a UKIP, I was this culture spokesman. Uh, that, that used to give the BBC and the commentators 
huge amounts of laughs that we had a, co- a culture as postman. What's that, wrong with having a culture? No, of course not. They used to think <laughs> they used to think I would walk out with the big John Bull yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, waistcoat on. No, actually, we talked about uh, things far more uh, deeply than any of the other parties. But I remember at the time saying we should have a huge yearly festival of Britain and British history. And the, the point was to children you know should be taken to it uh or even make it permanent after a while you can do that mm. do that like uh the festival of britain which is a festival but then the remnants of it i.e the festival mm. hall the queen elizabeth hall and all of those things they're all they're all they were all established by that mm. i thought wouldn't that be a good thing to do yeah because you can't trust schools anymore so let's try and get their imaginations going uh by doing it that way but of course you know i mean i'd love to take my sons to something like you know, something like that or something like the Crystal Palace or something. Yes, yes. Because I know my kids, but oh my God, what is all this? I'm like, son, this is stuff we've done. Yes, yes. That would be fantastic. It would be be. amazing. But of course, we're not going to do that. (laughs) And nothing good is going to happen. Um, Chad Koala says, if there's one thing Marxists like the EFF hating more than the rich, it's independent farmers, which is totally true, Mm. whose mere existence shows the world that with enough perseverance you can own your own land and manage it far more efficiently than a centralized government bureaucracy. Yeah, I I saw a stat that it was a ridiculous number. It was something like 90% of the appropriated farms in South Africa have failed. So if you just appropriate someone's farm and give it to someone else, that farm fails. Almost guaranteed. Yeah. Um, Someone online says, South African whites really should start fleeing now while it's still rhetoric. Uh, actually, in many cases, it's not rhetoric. Hundreds of attacks a year. Brutal mm. attacks. Attacks that have the the tinge of vengeance. Mm. Mm. That's, oh, the, yeah. that's what the, the, the brutality of the attacks, they've got this weird personal aspect to them, and it's awful. Absolutely awful. Um, Edelstan says, South Africa would be looked at so differently if Mandela and Tutu had not been such great marketers of forgiveness. Mandela's wife speaks very much, speaks very much like Mugabe did. She was a terrorist, so uh, South Africa post-apartheid has not been dissimilar to Mugabe's Zimbabwe. Uh, quite possibly. I'm not an expert, but I know a little bit. Um, Arizona Desert Rat says, Americans talking about American history? Well, this is going to turn out to be embarrassing. Don't worry, if British people were talking about British history, that'd be embarrassing too. <laughs> picked on your country because Al Sharpton made, made it funny. Uh, Omar says, the left makes no secrets how much you are supposed to hate the foundational history of America or any other Western country. Is it any wonder so few people are interested in being lectured about how evil their heritage is? At this point, ignorance might be a semi-deliberate defense mechanism. It's actually a good point, isn't it? Well, uh, yes. It might, might be better to be ignorant rather than hateful of your own history. <sighs> Boy, dear, what a... You know, these are the options. I, mean, I know. This is, you know, I know. It's terrible. Yeah. I remember... It's, it's, it's kind of quite a well-known statistic now, but most kids, or a, a high proportion of kids, thought that Churchill was, in fact, that insurance bulldog, you know, the insurance <laughs> with the nodding yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. They really did. I bet they did. Mm. Actually, so, yeah. therefore, to, is that better than thinking he was racist scum? I mean, Probably. have we got to that level, you know? Probably. I've I've seen loads of historians on Twitter, a lot of them Indian, try having to essentially write long threads saying, "No, Churchill didn't genocide Indians. There was a famine caused by a monsoon, and there couldn't the, the Japanese controlled the ocean at the time in that area, 
And so we had to, Churchill, like as soon as he found out, organized the relief of like 100,000 tons of grain from Iraq mm. to be sent to India. It's just he couldn't do it any quicker. Mm. And it couldn't be done the other way because the Japanese had been invading Myanmar or wherever, Burma. And it, you know, it's not Churchill's fault there was a famine. And he did everything that could be conceivably done to stop the famine. Also, this was in the middle of the World War. Yeah. And so the troops, of course, had to be supplied or, or else they'd starve and would lose the war. So, and but but this has just been repackaged now into Churchill starved the Indians. Oh yes, yeah. So are you mad? Yeah. It's absolutely mad. It's well, just such uh, an obvious lie. Most yes, most people who make those kind of anti-Churchill claims, though, of course, uh, are driven entirely on things he has said or or written. Yeah, not about his actions. They don't know what no. his actions were. Yeah, no, they yeah. don't. And it is, it is, exactly, and the actions. I mean, you know, call me old-fashioned, but I actually think what someone says is not nearly as important yes, as yeah. someone does. Yeah. Boy, that really is old-fashioned. I know, I know. I'm feeling my age. But to be honest with you, at this point, I'm as I'm growing older, I'm looking at modernity and the youth, and I'm I'm actually quite happy that I was I was lucky enough to get these old-fashioned ideas into my head. Well, I tell you, uh, uh, I I'm 62 now. I'm talking to a friend who's taken the Benedictine option. She's now in Lucca in Italy, surrounded by a lovely place, lovely buildings, but. No, basically, we say, weren't we lucky yes. to actually get the tail end? In, even if you're talking about popular culture, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. the wonderful Hollywood films of the mid-century, the yeah. wonderful popular music of the mid-century, all of these things, and the drama, and the literature, and all of that. And you sort of think, we were very lucky to see the tail end of something uh, which was great. It's um, not just that it's, 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 I mean, I was lucky to be, to have grown up in the late eighties and nineties, Like even then Hollywood was still producing good films. Hmm. Even then, I mean, remember Britpop, right? Hmm. Cool Britannia and all that. Hmm. At least there, there was a great cultural vibrant vibrance in this country. Hmm. You know, there was Blur and Oasis. There was loads, loads of great films, like the Matrix, Fight Club, you know, Sixth Sense. There were loads of really great films. Gladiator came out around that sort of time. Great films were still made at that time. Great culture was still produced. People were happy and they enjoyed things. It's only in the last 20 or so years that yes. things have just created. It's this century. Yes, I think it's pretty much this century. No, I, I agree. I, I would say that still, I cling to my thing, that the absolute apex uh, in terms of all those popular cultural things uh, would have been around in America around 1945 to 60. And I think... Just think of walking down Broadway uh, in 1948, unheard of material success, Tennessee Williams on, on Broadway, Truman Capote writing, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Nina Simone. No one under singing. 30 recognizes any of these do, 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 Really? Would they really not? Probably not. All those I names. I bet if you were to poll them, they'd be like, oh, all those names I kind of grew up. But that was what it was. That's what the cultural mainstream was then. Yeah. Anyway, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, so, Peter, if people want to find you, uh, where should they go? Oh, right. Okay, well, um, I'm on Twitter at, um, at PR Whittle. And then John obviously... That up for us. Yeah. Should have had up in advance. And then also there is... There we go. And also New Culture Forum. Uh, there we go. And so yep. that's probably the best way to get in in touch with me, newcultureforum.org.uk, um, and of course on YouTube too. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming in. 
It's been oh, a no, it's a pleasure. pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Sorry I didn't have something more jolly to talk about. Well, no, no. You've got to talk about the things that you see in front well, of you. It's really exactly. Right? Exactly. Reality. Yeah. So anyway, uh, thank you so much <laughs> for joining us, folks. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. Take care.